0: Hello everyone and welcome to the june twenty eighth edition of the Workcomp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folsen, an attorney of the Floyd Scarin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The US Supreme Court ruled that California was violating the U.S. Constitution with a decades old regulation that gives union organizers access to agricultural company land for part of the year to talk to workers. The justices said that the 1975 provision, which grew out of the efforts of Cesar Chavez to give farm workers collective bargaining rights, infringed the rights of landowners. The California regulation in question grants labor organizations a right to take access to an agricultural employer's property in order to solicit support for unionization. The regulation mandates that agricultural employers allow union organizers onto their property for up to three hours a day, 120 days a year. Organizers from the farm workers sought to take access to property owned by two California growers, Cedar Point Nursery and Fowler Packing Company. The growers filed suit in a federal district court seeking to enjoin enforcement of the access regulation on the grounds that it appropriated without compensation an easement for union organizers to enter their property and therefore constituted an unconstitutional per se physical taking prohibited under the 5th and 14th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. But the trial court denied the growers' motion for a preliminary injunction and then dismissed the complaint. Holding that the access regulation did not constitute per se physical taking, because it did not allow the public to access the grower's property in a permanent and continuous manner. Then a divided panel of the Court of Appeal for the Ninth Circuit affirmed, and an en banc rehearing was denied over dissent. However, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed and ruled in favor of the landowners in the case of Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid. It ruled that when the government physically acquires private property for a public use, the Takings Clause contained in the United States Constitution obligates the government to provide the owner with just compensation. California's Access Regulation appropriates a right to invade the grower's property, and therefore constitutes a per se physical taking. Rather than restraining the grower's use of their own property, the regulation appropriates for the enjoyment of third parties, here the union organizers, the owner's right to exclude them. The right to exclude is a fundamental element of the property right. And a WCAB panel concluded that an injury while on a personal errand in a mobile office was arising out of employment and in the course of employment. In this case, in 2018, John Charbagian was involved in a serious automobile accident in his company-provided vehicle. At the time, he was in field servicing orthodontist accounts for a company known as Ormco Corporation. At some point in the day, he engaged in a personal errand by stopping at a car dealership. From there, he headed to his child's school for a pickup. While driving between these two locations, Carbagian was involved in the serious vehicle accident and was injured. His job required him to work as a senior territory manager and his duties required that he perform sales to existing accounts with orthodontists and develop new accounts as well within his territory, covering primarily California and Nevada. He was not provided a fixed office location. Instead, the employer provided a vehicle, cell phone, and an email account. He was expected to respond to any texts or emails through the cell phone email account throughout the day. If he received a text or email while driving, he was expected to respond as long as such communication while driving complied with state law. There was no prohibition on engaging in personal errands at the same time he was in the field performing his job duties for the employer and both of them could occur simultaneously. But the employer denied benefits, claiming it did not occur in the course of employment. After a trial, the work comp judge awarded benefits and found that the company vehicle, as outfitted, was for all intents and purposes a mobile office provided by the employer and was at the beck and call of the orthodontist throughout the day. The award was sustained in the panel decision of Charbagian v. Ormco Corporation, and the case provides a good overview of the going and coming rule. The panel said that the going and coming rule is not applicable here because applicant was a salaried mobile regional salesperson who essentially worked out of an employer-provided vehicle. At the time of the injury, he was not engaged in a routine commute to a fixed place of business at fixed hours. Instead, he worked out of his vehicle making cell phone calls, sending and receiving emails, and driving throughout a large region that included California and Nevada to meet with clients. Moreover, even if the going and coming rule were applied to his travel, The facts of this case bring it within several of the rule's many exceptions. One of those exceptions consists of instances involving employer-provided transportation. In addition, the personal comfort doctrine holds that the course of employment is not broken by certain acts relating to the personal comfort of the employee, as such acts are helpful to the employer in that they aid in efficient performance by the employee. On the other hand, acts which are found to be departures effecting a temporary abandonment of employment are not protected. Injuries sustained while the employee is engaging in an activity that has a dual purpose, which serves the business needs of the employer and the personal needs of the employee occur in the course of employment. And now our crime report. The Riverside County Board of Supervisors approved the Riverside County District Attorney's contract with the state of California to take the lead in handling investigations and prosecutions involving unemployment insurance fraud. The terms of the agreement with the California Office of Emergency Services are retroactive to August 1, 2020, and will conclude december 31st of this year a total of 1 and a quarter million dollars is being awarded by the california oes the district attorney's staff is now tasked with overseeing the pandemic unemployment assistance and unemployment insurance fraud task force the funds allocated the comp- under the compact can be used for overtime expenses hiring investigators paying on-the-job expenses of city attorneys and area law enforcement officers while they build cases to present to the district attorney's office and for equipment purchases required for investigations and prosecutions to move forward. The DA's office is handling a growing number of fraud cases directly tied to jobless claims filed during the coronavirus public health closures. Some investigations are managed by the DA's Bureau of Investigations. Others are being spearheaded by municipal police agencies. The Riverside Police Department's Economic Crimes Unit has been particularly busy. Earlier this month, the unit completed an investigation that uncovered the alleged theft of nearly $320,000 in unemployment benefits from the EDD. In that case, the 28-year-old defendant allegedly stole the identities of 13 people to withdraw the funds using state-issued ATM cards. A report released on January 28th by the California State Auditor estimated that the EDD in 2020 dispersed at least $10.4 billion in benefits based on fraudulent claims. Even inmates incarcerated in multiple counties, including Riverside, are under investigation since the audit indicated more than $800 million in benefits were distributed to incarcerated prisoners. However, some of the recent convictions show that EDD fraud occurred a decade before the pandemic even began. Just this week, federal prosecutors announced that 42-year-old Robert Joseph Maher, formerly of Stockton, was sentenced to six years and three months in prison for mail fraud and aggravated identity theft. Maher participated in a scheme to defraud the EDD by filing fraudulent claims for unemployment insurance benefits. He and his co-defendant, Michael Heron II, also of Stockton, created fictitious companies and fictitious employees by using the real identities of persons with and without their knowledge. They then filed claims with EDD falsely stating that the employees had been laid off or fired. The unemployment benefits were deposited into debit cards that were mailed to the addresses controlled by Maher, Heron, or other associates. In all, Maher and Heron filed at least 72 fraudulent claims for unemployment insurance benefits, seeking a total of nearly $740,000, of which the EDD paid out about $610,000. Most of this occurred prior to the pandemic. Back in 2019, Heron pleaded guilty to similar counts of mail fraud and aggravated identity theft, and was sentenced to six years and three months in prison. 37-year-old Castroville resident and owner of World Class Properties, LLC, Marco Polo de la Rosa zassadi pled no contest to contracting without a license and failing to secure payment of workers' compensation insurance. He was sentenced to 40 days in county jail, three years court probation, and a $1,000 fine. The Contractor State Licensing Board opened an investigation in this case back in 2018. Investigators observed four persons painting and plastering a property owned by Zasadi. They determined that he was acting in the capacity of a General B contractor, by undertaking a project of owner-builder without the required contractor license. This is a violation of the California Business and Professions Code. Society also utilized laborer of at least four persons without providing workers' compensation insurance, also a violation of the labor code. After the investigation was concluded, the case was referred to the district attorney's workers' compensation fraud unit. The Contractor State License Board allows an owner of his own property to act without a general contractor in charge of a project under the following terms. For home improvements, the worksite must be the owner's principal residence that has been occupied for 12 months before the completion of the work. The work must be performed prior to the sale of the home, and the owner cannot take advantage of the contractor license exemption on more than two structures during any three-year period. And for construction of a new single-family residents, the owner is limited to selling four or fewer residential structures in one calendar year, and the work necessary to complete the project must be performed by licensed subcontractors. And in regulatory news, the city of San Francisco's 35,000 employees will need to get vaccinated against COVID-19 or risk losing their jobs. The new policy would make San Francisco the first major city and county in California to require COVID-19 vaccinations for its employees. Workers who refuse or fail to provide a religious or medical exemption could be terminated. The mandatory vaccination requirement, which goes into effect once the vaccines have been formally approved by the FDA, Extends to all city government employees, including police, firefighters, custodians, and city hall clerks. Earlier, San Francisco mandated that frontline workers in hospitals, nursing homes, and jails be fully vaccinated against COVID 19. San Francisco's Director of Human Resources said that employees will have until July 29 to report their current vaccination status to the city as a condition of their employment. Staff will need to upload their vaccination cards or documentation showing proof of vaccination through the city's payroll system. Medical exemptions for employees who are ineligible for COVID-19 vaccination must be verified by a health care provider. San Francisco has enacted some of the nation's strictest pandemic regulations and has the highest vaccination rate in the state, with at least 71% of eligible residents fully vaccinated. But not everyone is on board with the new policy. The regional vice president of the Service Employees International Union, Local 1021 Chapter, said it threatens the livelihoods of frontline essential workers. The chapter represents more than half of all workers employed by the city and county of San Francisco. According to its public health director, at this point, Los Angeles County is not planning to follow in San Francisco's footsteps. The University of California and California State University systems, however, have announced they will be requiring all students, faculty, and staff on their campuses to be vaccinated. Employment lawyers say companies are watching closely how pandemic return-to-work rules play out nationally as they look to bring workers back safely and to dispense with mask protocols. An employment attorney with the Ogletree Deacons Law Firm in Milwaukee referred to the situation as a very confusing hairball. In some states, return-to-work rules may require identifying those who got a COVID-19 shot with badges or bracelets, raising discrimination issues and complicated hiring in a tightening labor market as the pandemic eases. The U.S. Workplace Safety Regulator, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, has not provided clear guidance on this issue. OSHA's acting director said it will continue to let the employer make the determination on how to properly do this for their workplace. And the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which said last month that inoculated people can go without face coverings indoors in most places, has not addressed the thorny issue of how to establish whether someone has been vaccinated. What companies are debating right now is, is it necessary to specify on someone's badge or wear something around their neck that says, yes, they are vaccinated, And therefore, if they don't have a mask on, there's nothing to worry about. However, employers in California's Santa Clara County are required as of June 1st to ascertain if their workers have been vaccinated and check in with them every 14 days on those who say they have not or who decline to answer. Workers in Silicon Valley County who weren't vaccinated or refuse to reveal their status to the employer must remain masked and should follow other protocols such as limiting long-distance work, travel, and submitting to regular COVID-19 testing. Several states, including California, Michigan, and Oregon, have their own rules or guidance and documenting vaccination status for workers, but they are generally less strict than in Santa Clara County. In Montana, however, a recently enacted law discourages employers from asking about vaccination status because it could lead to discrimination claims, according to employment lawyers. California has approved a $100 million bailout for the failing California cannabis industry. Getting cannabis regulations wrong comes at a high cost, as California's $100 million fund to help floundering marijuana businesses has made abundantly clear. California's earmarked money, the money last week to aid cannabis companies that are struggling financially, in large part because of bureaucratic delays and missteps in transitioning them from temporary licenses into more stringent, permanent ones. It's a cautionary tale for other states that are figuring out how to balance social equity provisions, tax rates, and competing with an illicit market valued at $66 billion last year. While California's 15% tax on legal marijuana has been blamed for pushing consumers to the illicit market, it's clear that much more has gone wrong. Legalization, which began in 2016, has been messy, with rules varying by city and county. The process has also been slow and expensive. That weighed most on small operators, thus many have not transitioned to the regulated recreational market, which has more potential than medical. Some estimate that only about 700 of the state's roughly 10,000 dispensaries have become fully legal and regulated. That's left a swath of companies in a gray area. This bailout money tries to make up for what has been a slow, heavy red tape process of getting these dispensaries up and going. In California, it can take as long as two years to get a license. An initial cost to open a regulated dispensary started about $250,000. And litigation also gummed up the process. After California gave out its first 100 license, licenses it planned to allocate others to social equity applicants, minorities and others harmed by the war on drugs. That effort got mired in the courts over who was qualified. But the state also sees opportunity ahead. Governor Gavin Newsom's $100 billion California Comeback Plan calls for $630 million in future tax funds from legalized cannabis to be spent on health care, environmental protection, and public safety. And in medical news, researchers have conducted a study showing that the B117 lineage of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 that emerged in the U.K. is now rapidly being displaced as the dominant strain in the United States by the variants of concern B1.617.2 and P.1, that these emerged in India and Brazil. Since b has displaced the older dominant variant in England and other countries. Researchers from Helix in San Mateo, California, set out to determine whether it is also displacing the earlier variant in the United States. This new variant was first identified in the United States on March 16, 2021, To examine the impact that the new variants of concern have had on the prevalence of the original source of the infection in the United States, the researchers analyzed polymerase chain reaction and sequencing results of samples collected by the Helix laboratories across the country since April. The team's analysts showed that last year's B117 variant is no longer responsible for the majority of new cases in the country. The percentage positive cases that were of the older lineage dropped from 70 in April 2021 to 42% over a period of just six weeks. Next, the researchers compared the Helix sequencing data by county with the county vaccination rates reported by the CDC. The study showed that the new variant was growing faster in counties with a lower vaccination rate. A study by Public Health England showed that full immunization with the AstraZeneca or the Pfizer vaccine remains more than 90% effective at protecting against hospitalization following infection. The researchers expect that the newest variant will soon become the dominant variant in the United States. Another new medical study tracked instrumentation utilization rates for total knee arthroplasties at two high-volume East Coast hospitals. And the study has just been published in the June 1, 2021 edition of the Journal of Arthroplasty. One of the study's authors and an orthopedic knee surgeon said that the orthopedic community has tackled the costs of the obvious big-ticket items implant costs, length of stay in the hospital, reducing the use of inpatient rehabilitation, and skilled nursing facilities. But there are other opportunities to control costs during the perioperative episode, which are less obvious but equally important. The purpose of this new study was to improve the OR workflow reduce inefficiencies in instrument processing, and ultimately help to control OR costs by optimizing surgical trays. In any given hospital, the surgical instrument trays used in knee and hip arthroplasty surgery are often poorly organized and overstocked with redundant or underutilized tools. This increases the risk of processing and sterilization errors, processing time and expenses, the risk of error in tray preparation, increases the time it takes for the OR technician to set up the table, and it puts those who have to lift the heavy trays at risk of work-related injuries from muscular strain. The issue has been looked at in other surgical specialties, and to a lesser extent in the subspecialty of knee and hip surgery. The team randomly selected 35 elective primary total hip and knee arthroplasties performed by four fellowship-trained surgeons. An independent observer noted the type and number of instruments used, as well as the timing of different steps in the sterilization process. The surgeons identified redundant or underutilized instruments and agreed upon the fewest number needed for each tray. It turns out that between 40% and 50% of the instruments were unused or underutilized. Removing unused instruments and suggesting that surgeons use comparable yet redundant tools in some situations. Resulting in resulted in considerable savings in instrument uh, trace sterilization and processing times and table setup times. Total instrument count could be reduced by roughly one third, and the number of instrument sets could be reduced by up to two thirds in some cases. This would lead to forty to one hundred and fifty minutes saved during the sterilization process and potential cost savings of nearly $300,000 a year on average for a 1500 1, joint replacement case volume. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scaron, Mnooki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.